Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, Solomon's porch. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Interesting passage of Scripture, huh? We'll deal with that in just a minute. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So here with this, as we are readers of Luke's history of the early church, we readers have this account of the death, the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira fresh on our minds, and then he takes us immediately to how the church is continuing to grow, prosper, succeed. That the signs and the wonders that God had been sending are continuing to be sent. And so uh, we take a, a, a a brief, just for a brief moment, because I want to get down to other parts of this uh, chapter today, but just for a brief moment, taking a look at the continuing ministry of the apostles as is described. First, it appears that from this passage reading, the apostles were forced to continue their work without a lot of support from their Christian family, from the church, so to speak. And that is taken from that phrase that I read, no one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. We find the apostles right back out, ministering in signs and wonders, and Luke puts this little note in there. Nobody wanted to be associated with them. They were afraid. Well, yeah, after Ananias and Sapphira and the fear that gripped the church, they didn't know what part they wanted to have to do with this. They were truly puzzled about how they fit into this and which direction it was going and what it was going to cost them and how dangerous it might be to be associated with these people. So Luke notes, the apostles continued to minister, and nobody wanted to be with them. So they went on by themselves. 
And from this, I just want to make this little comment that because the signs and the wonders were there, that was a confirmation from God that what the apostles were doing pleased God. We like confirmation from God. We like to know we're tracking right, don't we? So the signs and the wonders are still there. Something is still working. The apostles are still tracking with God. The Christian community seemingly abandoned them. But sometimes, those who are doing the work of the Lord have to continue doing the work of the Lord even though they don't have the support of everybody around them. That happens sometimes in the kingdom work. Now, I've been in, in that position a few times in my life, and I have a different dynamic being a pastor of a church because I don't have the power and the authority and the freedom to choose sometimes to say, I don't care what you people want, I'm going to do what I want to do. I mean, there would be no biblical basis for me to be able to say, I have the right to do that. Because I, I, there's restrictions being associated with being the pastor of the church. First of all, I don't have unlimited access to the checkbook to go out and write the checks and do everything I think I want to do, even though you people don't want to do that. And uh, second of all, we have restrictions in place that prevent a pastor from exercising dictatorial authority over a church. And uh, you know, in, in case you ever get in a position where you have a pastor who has uh, delusions of being a dictator, you have recourse for that. That's not to be allowed in the Assembly of God churches. So see, it's a different dynamic here. But nevertheless, there have been times when uh, we had, we maybe I would say we as the leadership, maybe not the pastor just as the Lone Ranger, but maybe we as the leadership had to proceed forward in doing what had to be done, making decisions that had to be made that were not, did not prove to be popular decisions, did not prove to be decisions that everybody embraced and approved. And so that's the dynamic that's going on here. Sometimes when you know you're doing what God wants you to do, and you know you may not be, have the support of everybody that you're supposed to have supporting and behind you. You just have to go on anyway. That's the perils of ministering in the kingdom is that sometimes you won't always carry the popular vote for everything you do. There's been pastoral decisions, the kind of decisions that I am not obligated to bring anybody in on, pastoral decisions that have to be made that sometimes, uh, as it turns out, people don't like what's been done. Sometimes it's been church discipline decisions. Uh, sometimes it's been staff decisions. Sometimes, and I'm talking about over the history of, of my entire ministry as well as any other pastor uh, in similar situations such as myself. You as a person, as an individual, not a pastor, you might also be in the position sometime of having to do the right thing, the godly thing, though you don't, your family, your friends don't understand what you're doing, and sometimes you have to step out and do what is right anyway because you know what God wants you to do. Even the young people here, you might be 
under the pressure of the peers that they expect you to do certain things and you're going to take a stand. That's not what God wants. That's not what God wants me to do and you have to take a stand. That's difficult to do. But you have to do that sometimes when you're serving God. Now, the second thing we notice in this passage you just read is it somewhat resembles an ancient version of the modern healing campaigns that most of us are aware of from the 20th century and not so much in the 21st century. It seems like those things don't have quite the thrust they had a few years ago, but most of us understand when I say a healing campaign. There have been some evangelists that build themselves as healing evangelists. You go back into the mid-1900s. And probably the most famous during that time that most of you would uh, recognize would be Oral Roberts and his tent. Uh, There were a number of others at that time. You may not be aware of them. I've mentioned A.A. Allen before. Uh, We've talked about, um, well, I'm not going to go into a whole list of them, but they, they would oftentimes carry a tent, and the tent was representative of the healing campaign that's come into our area. Eventually, they abandoned the tent and went into uh, arenas and coliseums, and and, uh, people went to the healing campaign. Anybody ever been to one of those, what I would call a healing campaign? I know it's a loose term. Anybody ever been to one of those? A few of you. If you've been there, you probably can testify that that's the time when people begin to do exactly what they did here. They they bring people in uh, wheelchairs, uh, on crutches. They wheel them in on hospital beds, gurneys. I've got medical people. Gurneys, is that an appropriate term? Is that okay? Wheel them in on uh, uh, what they carry them in. The people who are needing Uh, physical touch and you can see them and there's sometimes an area reserved for these people that are looking for healing. They heard the healing campaigns that come into town and it's attracted people who are interested in them personally receiving a healing. So we here we have this this ancient counterpart to what we recognize today. They heard about the miracles that were going on at the hands of the Apostles. Word spread rapidly, and it was uh, obviously indicative. There's a lot of needy people, aren't there? There are more needy people in this world than the church is meeting their needs. Now, I know there's a lot of people who are financially needy, and the church is not able to meet the financial needs of everybody. There's a lot of people who are needing healing and the question is why shouldn't the church make themselves available to those who have those kinds of needs to partner together with them in prayer one of the frustrating things about this is we don't see the healings flowing today like we read in scripture how many of you find that a little bit frustrating how many of you have prayed as a God? Why are we not seeing this like we used to see it? Well, theologians are going to offer all kinds of answers to that simple question. You've got the cessationists that are going to say, well, it happened at that time. It doesn't happen anymore at all. You've got others who, are, who say that God especially uh, did many of these things to be in the beginning to show, to demonstrate 
what he approved of and what he was able to do so that the church for centuries could not lose faith in saying, well, God can't do that. Well, he can, and he did. And then it still leaves a gap between what he used to do and what he's actually doing today. When you look at what's happening in the body of Christ around the world, we still see plenty of activity in the supernatural. It's just that we get frustrated because we don't see it in our local church as often as we desire to see it. But we never will. There never will be a point in time where every person we pray for is going to get healed. At some point, we have to yield to whatever God is going to do and say, God, you've instructed us to pray for people. It's an appropriate thing to do. We pray in faith, and sometimes it just doesn't happen. Oftentimes, it doesn't happen. And, of course, the enemy's right there bringing doubt into our life. Is it true? Is it real? Can, does he really, truly do this anymore? Why are we not receiving our healing? We struggle with these things. But we have to go back to the book of Acts to understand that God can, God does, and he does certainly expect us to believe that he can and he does. Sometimes he doesn't, and that's the hard one to have to accept, isn't it? So we see an example here, a kind of a, a, a microcosm of a world that has many needs and a, world, and a church that is in a position to minister to the needs of people. Now, I have mentioned before, throughout the book of Acts, it's very common to see a theme running through the entire book, and that is that the church fights its battles just to do its work. There is an adversary that is working against the church at all times. That's very apparent in the book of Acts. The story of the birth of the church, the story of the struggle of the early Christians to advance the kingdom of God. Oppositions everywhere and them plowing through this. We've literally witnessed the birth and the early development of the church in this book. And we see how they struggled to survive against how many different obstacles that were thrown against them at different times. To see the church was born into controversy. And the, at the, the very moment that these believers were empowered by the Holy Spirit, it started right there as people started mocking them, trying to shame them, trying to confuse them, trying to attribute this to something other than God. It, it started very early in the development and the birth of the church. <clears throat> and then soon after, Peter and John Apostles who walked with Jesus, trained personally by Jesus. They began to do what Jesus had trained them to do. This was all what it was all about, three and a half years walking with the Master. It's so when he went away and the Holy Spirit came, they could continue to do the works he had trained them to do. So they do it. They just do the works of the Lord, thrown in jail, <clears throat> taken before the Sanhedrin, threatened. Persecution arises making it difficult to do what Jesus had told them to do. But Jesus had taught them in such a way not to get discouraged, not to think it strange whenever they would do these things to his followers because of what they did to him. And he had trained them well so that when this opposition came, they didn't just despair 
and walk away and say, what's the use? We're trying to do God's work, but this is really hard. We, get, we have so much opposition. Why should we continue? No, they had been trained to punch through that. Then, if you're putting this whole thing about opposition against the church together and processing how many different ways do we see Satan opposing the church, you can look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira as an effort of the enemy to bring corruption into the church. Here's this couple that's going to obviously give some money from the sale of a land, but they come in and they lie, misrepresent about what they are doing. And the enemy has to have his fingers in that. And Peter is put in a position about what do you do when you're confronted with this kind of corruption in the church? And we have a good example from Peter saying, we cannot allow this. He, I mean, he had obviously the opportunity to turn a blind eye to what was going on. There was everything there to entice a greedy man to say, this is a lot of money. And we need the money. And why make a big deal out of it? But there's a thing about integrity. There's a thing about protecting the integrity of the church. And had that seed been planted in the church without being challenged, who knows what would have developed after that as the enemy brings more and more corruption into the church. So Peter did the right thing. He stopped it right there. That's a hard call to make a lot of times, people. I had a very successful builder, construction man in one of my churches and he came in to my office after the holiday breaks, Christmas, New Year's, first day the office was opened. And he laid a check on my desk, a significant amount of money. And he said, I want you to backdate this to last year. Last year would have been a few days ago, right? He said, this is a donation I make to the church every year so I can have a break on my taxes. Put you in an odd position. I said, I can't, I can't backdate that. Why not? I said, it's not honest. I'm lying. You brought it in. If you'd have put that in the mail and you would have had a postage stamp on it before midnight January uh, 1, that would be okay. It didn't make any difference if the postman was late getting it here. It's, it's legal. But you didn't bring that. You, you brought it into me, and you want me to lie and say this was brought in. And I said, I want that money. But I said, if you watch me do this, how will you ever trust me as your pastor on anything else? There might be a time when you are not happy with me. And you'll bring up how corrupt I am because you are a witness to how I will bend the rules. And I said, I, I wish I could take your money. I don't know how much I can tell you we need that money, but I can't do this. Now you're waiting for what he's going to do. He just left a check. He said, I'll fix it with my bookkeeper. <laughs> I said, well, you do whatever you're going to do. I said, I'm telling you what I can't do. 
You see, you can't let <clears throat> corruption sneak into the church. It doesn't pay off. It never pays off. You've got to keep, got to keep it clean. Got to keep it upright. The adversary is always looking for a way to get in and do something to create scandal in the church. This early church grew during this relentless opposition. And the fact of the matter is, if you study church history, which is a huge subject and covers centuries and centuries, so it's hard to really study church history unless you go to school to become a church historian. But if you, if you know anything, if you ever read a book that summarizes church history, you will discover one thing about the church, and that is it always grew and was strongest during the eras of persecution. And it was always in its worst condition during the easy years. And so the church grew from an infant church with just a handful of people entering immediately into opposition where the enemy is thinking, if I can fight them, I can stop them. And he did not know that persecution is the fertile soil in which the church grows best. He was providing an opportunity for the church to succeed, and he didn't even know it. So he persecutes. And the church grows, and he persecutes more, and the church grows more. Then he starts drawing blood from the church, and the church grows more. And it wasn't until the fourth century when, like Constantinople in the Roman Empire, comes along and says, okay, we've had enough of persecuting Christians. And so he, he changed the whole format. Christianity now was an accepted religion in the Roman Empire. No more persecution. And, and you got to imagine that the church would look at that and say, thank God, finally persecution has been lifted. Finally we can do the church with, uh, uh, do the work of the kingdom without all of this opposition. Just think what we're going to be able to accomplish now without having people persecuting us. Uh, talk about persecuting the church. You know, Nero burning people as human candles, fed to the wild beasts, skinned alive, and even the, the minor things where they were uh, uh, ostracized, they, the government would take away certain rights if they were Christians, uh, that they couldn't live as normal citizens because they were a Christian and they couldn't do what everybody else did. There was all kinds of way of persecuting Christianity. Constantinople says, we're not going to do that anymore. And the church now had the favor of the government. And it was at that very moment that the church began to grow corrupt and plunged into what everybody now knows is called the Dark Ages. It's so appropriate. Dark, obviously, uh, referring to a spiritual darkness. The church no longer had the influence and the power that it had up to that point. The church was a, 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 an organism to be reckoned with until the, they quit persecuting the church and then it quickly became corrupt. And it stayed in the dark ages for century after century after century after century. 
until finally the church began to emerge from this darkness and this sleep and, and, and the laity began to demand we have a right to access to the scriptures and the church saying no you can't have the scriptures we own the scriptures it doesn't belong in the hands of common men but there were those who, who gave their life to produce the scriptures so that the common man could have them Tyndall and Wycliffe and all these people that are, that are determined to put the scriptures in the hands of the common people and the invention of the Gutenberg press and being able to print these uh, and the Bible in some, in some translation in some form and get it out in the hands of the people and the church began to wake up from its sleep after having slept for centuries we grow in persecution now, if we, if we want to keep that in mind, I think we need to have a balanced perspective of what is happening to the church today in the United States of America. I, I know it's a sad thing to think about how the persecution of the church is arising here in America. We have been spoiled rotten. We have had the favor of the government ever since the United States of America has been born as a nation born with certain values that we as Christians really appreciated, uh, born into a, a nation that even though it's talking about freedom of religion, it wasn't really talking about freedom of all religions. It wasn't talking about freedom of Satanism. It was talking about with, with reference to Christianity because that's what well, they were escaping a church in a situation in England where it was a government-controlled church and they didn't want a government-controlled church. They wanted to be able to worship freely. And that was the whole concept of this freedom of religion in coming in here. It wasn't, it wasn't a freedom of religion that said we want to be a nation where it's okay to have anti-God religions come in and, and thrive. And, and it, it, that, that wasn't what the founders were thinking. They were thinking and assuming that the Christianity, the Judaism, the uh, Judeo-Christian values would be allowed to, to exist uh, and, and worship uh, would be free and nobody could stop them. And, uh, you know, today there's all this chatter about separation of uh, church and state. And there is, most of you know probably, but there is no clause in the Constitution uh, talking about separation of church and state. This was a phrase that Thomas Jefferson used when he was writing to... Uh, uh, a church that had written to him asking questions about the relationship of the church to the government. And he, when he wrote this, there's a, there is a wall of separation. He was talking about the wall of separation that kept the government from infringing and encroaching on the right of the church. He was not talking about the church being separated out from the government so the government had no references to religion whatsoever. Uh, obviously he was a, a, a one of the founding fathers and, and a, a, a framer of so many of the concepts that we have. He was not talking about you can't pray in school. He was not talking about you can't have prayer in the Senate. He, that was the farthest from him. He was talking about the reverse. There's a wall of separation to keep the government from, from controlling you or infringing on you. Not to keep the church from 
influencing the government. And so it's been, it's been a mess. Here we are in this sympathetic nation, sympathetic to Christianity, churches granted tax-exempt status. We can own property. We don't pay tax on the property. Drives people nuts. And so we've had all this favor. And now we see the church coming in under more attack and persecution in this day and age than we ever have in the history of the United States of America. And it's bothersome. It's troublesome. Maybe the best thing that can ever happen to the church, the American church, is to finally have to fight for their existence, to fight to advance the kingdom of God, to be prepared to do battle, to be prepared to be a hardened soldier. Not that we're going to go forth aggressively with armies and conquer people. We don't evangelize by conquering. We evangelize by spreading the good news. But the church prospers in times of persecution. So when the persecution comes, I understand. We've been spoiled. We don't like to lose that status. We don't like to lose that favor. But whenever you look at the stats and Christianity is declining in the United States of America, every major denomination in the United States is showing a decrease year after year. The Assemblies of God is, is one of the only, is the only two uh, religions, so to speak, under the broad label of Christianity that showed any increase was the Assemblies of God and the Mormons. And the Mormons are not even biblically Christian. But the, and, the, and the increase in the Assemblies of God is minimal. It's almost flatlined. So just the fact that we're not decreasing and we're just, just a slight tick upward is in sharp contrast to the loss that many other experience. What's happening to the church? We haven't had to fight many battles. We've had it too soft. We've had it too easy. And growing easy, we grow flabby. And growing flabby, we lose contact with God. Now, you can, you can reference this in your own personal life. When you're going through trials, how many of you are willing to admit today you do more praying than you do during prosperous times? See, that's how the principle works. We all get more spiritual when the life is rough going. And then we get lax and lazy when all the bills are paid. And everything's going fine and nobody's sick. And then we don't feel as compelled to draw close to God during those times. But I'll tell you what, let tragedy hit your family. Let somebody say over your spouse, it doesn't look good. You have limited days to live unless there's a miracle. Suddenly we're all for praying and fasting and worshiping God. And we don't miss church because we need something from God. That's the reason that persecution is good for the church. That's the reason that even though the persecution is coming and even though I can't bring myself to pray, Lord, send the persecution. We need some good old persecution. I can't hardly get to that point. I can say that it might be the thing that wakes the church up and makes us get serious about our mission and our calling and get our priorities straightened out here in the United States. Here's what is a good thing about persecution as 
as relates to the early church. Here's what it did for the early church. Persecutions of the early church kept the church on track. They couldn't deviate. They had to stay on focus because of the persecution. Number two, it kept the church most effective. Number three, it purified the church because of the struggles it endured, like the case of Ananias and Sapphira. So there's, there's plenty of benefit to enduring persecution rather than praying for God, let us have peaceful times. Well, you know what? If we'd have been faithful to fulfilling our mission with a zeal that pleased God during the prosperous times, I'm not sure that we would have had to worry about whether God would take the prosperous times away or not. But it brings us back to his feet. Peter and John are basically repeat offenders. They've already been hauled in before the Sanhedrin for preaching the gospel. They've been commanded not to do it. They leave and they go out and the very first thing to do is to go out and they preach again. I find Acts so full of these fascinating stories. And the story we're about to embark on now as we move a little bit farther down in this chapter is one of these fascinating stories that we're not told a lot of detail about it. We're just told enough about it to leave us saying, wow, wow. Peter and John are arrested again. And they are given these in spite of the fact they've been given this cease and desist order. It, notice that when they went out and preached again, they did not do it in secret. I, I find this very fascinating. Having been threatened by the Sanhedrin, I can see where it would have been tempting to say we can't stop just because they told us to stop. But how about if we just keep it low key? How about if we just go out of earshot and continue to minister where they can't catch us? And I want you to notice what Peter and John did. They went right back out in the public, free for everybody to see and everybody to witness, and began to preach again, to defy the authority of the Sanhedrin. says, you can't do that. You just watch us. We have orders from God that supersede your orders. The high priest and his associates and all the Sadducees found the apostles. There they are doing what they were told not to do. Threw them in jail, waiting for trial the next day. Now this is where the story really gets fascinating. In the middle of the night, this angel appears to Peter and John. Already it's interesting. I haven't had an angel appear to me. The closest I had is I married my wife. But to have an angelic being come and appear to me, I've never had an angel appear to me. So I'm fascinated right here. They're in jail. The angel comes. And the angel tells them specifically, I want you to go and stand in the temple courts and tell people about this new life. And Peter and John, that's where we have to fill in the blanks. Because the next thing we know, they're standing in the temple courts and they're preaching. But we don't know how this happened. We know one thing. It was by the power of God 
that Peter and John, sitting in that jail, got out of jail and ended up in the temple courts preaching again. And it bewilders us. We can only speculate. How did God make this happen? All the speculation is, is basically meaningless, but it can't help us from trying to think, okay, did he, did he pull one of those beam me up, Scotty, things? You dematerialize, poof, you're transported over there, and you appear. That we're getting a little bit sci-fi here, aren't we? Did, did, they, did, did the angel uh, lead them through solid block walls? I don't know. Did, did the angel accommodate their humanness and saying, I can come and go as I please. You humans can't pass through walls, so I'm going to pick the lock, let you out, I'm going to fasten the guard's eyes. We're going to walk right out. They won't know. And when it's all said and done, I'll lock the door back. I'll fix their eyes back, and we can get I don't know. What, what difference does it make? Whatever they did, there is no logic, logical explanation other than God did it. God got them out, and he, any of those possibilities are something I have never thought of. He got them out of jail, and when the angel came and told them, I want you to go and stand in the public place, and I want you to preach about this new life, uh, he took care of it. He took care of it. It doesn't make any difference what God asks you to do, how impossible it might be. God will take care of it. He'll take care of the details. When God guides, God provides. Whatever he wants you to do, he'll make it possible for you to do it. You don't have to sweat the details. If God wants you to get out of the prison and go preach, he'll get you out of the prison. He's not going to say, good luck on figuring out how to do this. God will make it happen for you. That's the resourcefulness of God. And whatever God did, the bottom line is it, he, he, God was mocking the Jewish authorities. He made them look like complete idiots. See, the, the high priest wakes up in the morning. He's, he's got a, a, a full schedule for the day. He has to go to the Sanhedrin council. They've got business to conduct. So he, he gets dressed. He has his breakfast. He, he shows up office hours. He comes in. Uh, most of the wor world has been awake and bustling about for a long time, but he finally shows up to work, seats himself, clears his throat, and says, <clears throat> go bring the prisoners. They rush down to the jail. They rush back and say they're not there. What do you mean they're not there? That's, I don't know. The guards are there. The doors are locked. They're not there. That's all we know. They're not there. And they've been humiliated. They can't stop the work of the Lord with high priests and Sanhedrins and guards and jails, and they just can't stop the work of the Lord because God proves that when I want somebody to do something, they're going to do it, and you can't stop it. So they have no... They have no explanation. Let me put this in context, people. We're living in a very high technology age. We can do some amazing things with technology and sleight of hand. But they were living in a very primitive age 
where something happened there that they could not find the technology, they couldn't find the illusion, they couldn't find anything to give any explanation. Totally dumbfounded. They found him out preaching again. And I think the funny, to me, the funny part about it is that the Bible basically says they went and they, they, they didn't force them. They didn't take them by force. They went down there realizing they were dealing with some very slippery people. They were dealing with some people that had some power they were not acquainted with. So they didn't go in there with a chip on their shoulder. They went in there. And these Roman guards are talking to Peter and John, and they were saying, would you pretty please come with us? Please come with us. And don't disappear on the way. They asked them nicely. <laughs> I can hear Peter and John was more like it. Peter and John agreed. If you ask nice, be fine. And they go and they stand before the Sanhedrin again of their own agreement. But the high priest is livid. And he begins to scold him. I told you, don't do this. He chews them out. He scolds them. And then he says, I, basically, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a little bit of liberty here, but he basically says, I move we kill him right now. These, these men are a problem. Just kill him. Gamaliel doesn't like this. Sits on the council. And he says, uh, we're going to make more trouble for ourselves. We don't want to kill him. But too many people out there are followers. It's, they're too popular. We're gonna, we'll never win this battle. So he points, points out a couple examples and said, do you remember these people? And they were, they, they were, we were afraid they were going to do great things and cause a lot of trouble, but it came to nothing. And so Gamaliel says, let's just look at it this way. If this is of God, you can't stop it. And if it's not of God, it'll come to nothing. Now, a lot of people have quoted that because it's in the Bible, and they think that's good biblical wisdom. That is the wisdom of an ungodly man, worldly wisdom. Because if half of it's right, if it's of God, you can't stop it. But the other half is not right. If it's not of God, it'll come to nothing. There, there's a lot of things in this world that are super uh, successful that are not of God. So you only got it half right. But it was enough to convince these people, well, let's go with Gamaliel. We don't want to kill him. So the high priest agreed. He said, that, I will negotiate. I'll agree to let him go on one condition. Uh, let's, let's flog him first. Just let them know who they're messing with. And that, that, that's all it says. Once again, the details are left out. Don't think because the story is truncated that that wasn't a, a traumatic event. Don't miss the pain, the torment that went into flogging these. They didn't slap the wrist. They bared their back. They took the whip. They flogged them. They ripped the flesh. They drew blood. And Peter and John having their back 
slashed open with the whip and the blood soaking their garments came out of there and met their followers and they said we are so privileged to be counted worthy to suffer for his namesake it says they rejoiced that they were worthy I have a hard time fitting in with Peter and John if I you know I want to picture myself right there stripes on my back saying yeah this is great bring it on but I, I almost feel like I'm the weak one in the crowd. I'm coming out there and saying, you see what they've done? This hurts. Somebody get me a doctor. I don't, wanna, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. That's the human side. Peter and John standing there saying, we are rejoicing. We are worthy because we saw what our master went through. And if we are doing what our master did, we're going to suffer like our master did. We are rejoicing for the privilege of suffering for his name. Now, you know what? If, if we as modern-day Christians, if we as a church could get a hold of that, it would change so much about us. I don't think we would do near the complaining if we counted all of our struggles as rejoicing as a privilege to get to serve God. Now, let me make a distinction. First of all, let me say there is a difference between rejoicing and enjoying. And I'm, I'm sad to have to report that there was a, just the other day, uh, there was a, uh, one of the leaders in our movement that made a quote down at General Council just a few days ago. We concluded General Council in Florida. And this is the quote. It, it, got, it got put on the news feed. It got put on the Facebook. It got put on social media. God hasn't sentenced you to ministry as something to endure. He called you to it as something to enjoy. Now there's something about that that immediately struck me wrong. I, I, my mind searched rapidly through Scripture to conclude that there was never a time when Jesus told his disciples, his followers, how rough it's going to be and said, guys, you're going to enjoy this. You're going to love it. I'm going to send you out two by two. There's going to be some places where they are going to chase you out of town. You're going to love this. But he did tell them how hard it was going to be. And when this leader got up and said, God didn't call you to have to endure your ministry. He called you to have to, he called you so you could enjoy it. I've been pastoring since 1980. There's been far less times that I've enjoyed pastoring than I have enduring pastoring. And I don't want you to get me wrong. Through the whole time, I have counted it great joy to serve the Lord. Through
through the worst times, through the, through the best times, it's, it's always been a great joy to serve the Lord. But it was not enjoyable when somebody dropped the letter through my mail slot and ran before I could find out who it was. And I opened up the letter. Dear Pastor, we hope you burn in hell. I didn't enjoy that. But I count it great joy that I can suffer for his name's sake. When I picked up the phone and, and, and the man on the other end said, you can count the hours. I'm going to be there in three days. I'm going to break your neck and kill you. And I didn't hang up the phone and said, that, that felt good, God. <laughs> Bring some more of that. But I said, I count it great joy. I didn't enjoy it when I came back from vacation as a pastor. And I had discovered a letter that had been circulated in the congregation outlining me as a corrupt pastor and telling the many ways that I had miserably failed that church and criticizing the many things. And I read that and it had been duplicated. It had been distributed. Everybody in my church had that letter. I did, and when, when, when I went to the board meeting and I said, what are we going to do about this? Half of my board members said, I don't know. We, we agree. I didn't enjoy that. But I said, I count it great joy. And I'm counted worthy to suffer for the work of the Lord. Now, I got through all that mess. And God began to turn that church around. After fighting that for years and years and years and looking like I was never going to win that battle, God began to turn that church around. And we only had about 49 people left. And I had one little old lady came up to me. She was, she was an annoying Kenneth Copeland, name it and claim it, zealot. And it, it, me and her didn't see eye to eye on anything theologically. Man. She come up to me one time, and I'm, 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 I, I'm digressing, so don't, don't let me lose my spot. She said, Pastor, said I had arthritis in my wrist, and I rebuked it, and it leaped up to my elbow. I said, Jewel, you got that dreaded old leaping arthritis. That's the worst stuff. You <laughs> Jewel would get out every morning, and she would walk and pray the streets of that little town. And I did not agree with her. And we were at odds every time we tried to discuss the Bible. And she, she, she interpreted things Kenneth Copeland's way. And I had interpreted it God's way. And we, but I want to tell you, she prayed and she walked and she loved me and she prayed for me and I loved that woman and we didn't agree theologically. But I would call her up and I'd say, Jewel, when you're walking, you pray for me. And she would pray and she would walk and she would cry and she would speak in tongues. This woman walking all over Bernie, praying all over and up and down the streets. Everybody knew Jewel walked and prayed. And she came up to me and she said, don't worry about the church pastor. We'd rather have 50 people that love God than to have all those others and have the mess we had. Kept me hanging on. When I wanted to quit, kept me hanging on until God turned that around and went from 50 to over 200. Just, just, just a miraculous, miraculous turnaround. And all the things that we suffered through 
I didn't enjoy it. Whenever that woman came up to me, and of course I've told you about the previous pastor being a shameless adulterer, and came up to me in a hate-filled venom and said, Pastor, we would rather have an adulterer as a pastor as to have you. Didn't enjoy it, but I counted all joy. And I'm worthy to suffer for his sake. And we have to have that mental attitude. Because there's a lot about serving God you won't enjoy. But there's nothing about serving God that you won't count it joy. To be privileged to serve him. It's a, it's a biblical joy is a state of mind. It's a disciplined attitude. We choose to count it joy when we suffer but we don't enjoy the suffering. James, the brother of Jesus, told it to count it joy when we suffer trials, but we don't enjoy suffering trials. Jesus taught his disciples to count it a blessing when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely, but we don't enjoy it when it happens. Jesus warned his disciples they would be hated, they would be rejected. He said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. But he never said, boy, have I got a good deal for you. You're really going to enjoy this next one. And the problem is, we have a fluffy gospel today. Leading people to believe that following Jesus is going to bring you prosperity. It's going to bring you happiness that you can't imagine. And the materialistic message sells really well. It's just not a biblical message. If the American church needs a wave of persecution to rescue it from obsolescence and irrelevance, then so be it. And like the early church that endured the persecution, I guess I'm ready. Are you? Bow your heads.